Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. The fundamental that you have to get down to is whose industry is this? Um, does this industry belong to the tour operators and everyone else works in service to the tour operators? Or does the industry belong to the OTAs and the res tech and the tour operators are working in service with, with those? Now, you can, you can come at that at, from multiple different angles, but uh, my firm belief has always been, and, and I started as a tour operator, my firm belief has always been that this is a tour operator's industry who are best placed to serve the consumer and, and ResTech is positioned to serve tour operators. So if, if those companies start taking VC and start taking all these massive funding rounds and other things, um, it, does, it does change that dynamic slightly and, and not necessarily for the better. Today we have Alex Benbridge of Otora. Now he's not here to talk about his own business, Otora. Alex is here to talk about the future of reservation technology, the technology that hopefully all of you, our listeners, are using. And if you aren't already using, this is one of your opportunities to listen into a podcast and learn a bit about reservation technology, which I deem as an essential, 100% essential piece of technology that every single operator should be using. So why have I got Alex Bainbridge here to talk about reservation technology? Well, Alex was one of the very first founders of reservation technology. He founded Tour CMS way back in the day, 2003, 2004. We have a bit of history together. I was one of his first customers around about 2007. And in those days, there were really only a couple of choices. Alex's Tour CMS. Stephen Joyce with ResGo, one or two other starting. And if we compare that with today, where we have over 250 different ResTechs, it was a very, very different world as an operator then if you wanted to adopt reservation technology. You had a pretty pretty limited choice on what to, to do. Alex actually sold and exited to CMS around about 2015, 2016. I'm sure he'll tell us. So he's not in the reservation technology building business at the moment. He's in a different business. But he obviously keeps his eye on the future of reservation technology, and that's what we're here to talk about. So, Alex, the future of reservation technology, it's now a multi-million pound dollar business. You exited in 2015, 2016. Since then, we've had booking buying Fair Harbor at some hundreds of millions of dollars. We've had lots of ResTech BVC funded with a peak probably valued 400 million-ish if it's raising over $100 million, maybe maybe more, maybe slightly less. But this is 
big boys toys now. This is big business. So are they all onto a winner or are they all building something that hasn't got a role in the future? Hello, uh, Pete. Thank you for inviting me on to talk. This is going to be uh, an interesting discussion about ResTech. Yeah. Um, are they onto a winner? Well, that, that's a, that, that is such a massive question. The, you know, the, the, the fundamental that you have to get down to is whose industry is this? Um, does this industry belong to the tour operators and everyone else works in service to the tour operators? Or does the industry belong to the OTAs and the res tech and the tour operators are working in service with, with those? Now, you can, you can come at that at, from multiple different angles, but uh, my firm belief has always been, and, and I started as a tour operator, my firm belief has always been that this is a tour operator's industry who are best placed to serve the consumer, and, and ResTech is positioned to serve tour operators. So if, if those companies start taking VC and start taking all these massive funding rounds and other things, um, it does... It does change that dynamic slightly and, and not necessarily for the better. Yeah, I think we obviously you're a tourpreneur audience here. I don't think you're going to get much arguments on <laughs> who should be serving who on this. That obviously, we all should be serving the customer. At the end of the day, none of us exist without the end guest who takes the tours and the activities and goes in the attractions. So we all serve the customer. But I don't think you're going to get much arguments from this audience that the technology stack that we all use should be built to serve the tour operator for sure. And on the whole, it's only my opinion, but on the whole, I think that's probably correct from reservation technology. Certainly my experience of the industry over the last couple of decades is most reservation technology are very, very operator focused because they don't exist if, they, if they're not really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that about talking about serving the customer. Well, it depends who the customer is. Because most of us think we're in the tourism sector. And so most of us think that the, the customer that we're serving is tourism. However, um, and certainly the online travel agents are very focused on tourism. Um, but, but when you start talking about ResTech, uh, you can start looking at anything that's got a date and is bookable on that date. It doesn't necessarily have to be tourism. It could be leisure or it could just be uh, an asset with, with with dates, prices, and availability that is communally booked, like a meeting room. Um, so I think the concept of what a customer is is quite different, uh, or what the end customer is is quite different where you are on the uh, on the scale between being a tour operator, a res tech, and an online travel agent. Yeah, I think I think we have an awakening in the community that people are realizing that we're in the entertainment game rather than dedicating tourism and we certainly have some members in some parts of the audience that will only deal with tourists that is yep. their own only customer but we have many other members of the community who deal with a wide wide range of customers be that corporate companies be it sports events be it locals we've just been through a pandemic where locals suddenly become the in the be all and end all because they actually kept many businesses alive through the through the pandemic so I think we've got a realization coming that we actually are in entertainment. Yeah. And the competition isn't necessarily the other tour operator down the road who's doing a similar similar thing. It's everything that's happening in your destination at any time, be that concerts for music, be that sporting events, 
it's basically anything that can attract a potential customer's uh, interest is your competition because we're all in the entertainment game. The customer is looking to spend their time in a way that's going to cost money, so they're looking to spend their time well, and therefore we're in the entertainment game. Well, uh, yeah, and I would just say, I mean, uh, I'm not here to talk about my current business, but the, the biggest competition to buying a commercial product like a tour or an attraction entry is often something that's free. Uh, you can go for a walk in a market or you can go to sit on the beach for three hours. Um, you know, none of those experiences have to cost money. And in this kind of era that's coming up over the next few years where uh, due to the cost of living crisis that's happening in Europe and the US and, and elsewhere, you know, the, the pressure on price is going to be quite significant. So, the, you know, the, and that's something that I found a little bit tricky, uh, sort of having left sort of the tour sector directly in the last few years, is that the majority of customers take free experiences. That's it, free. Just they go to the market. That's what they, that's a, a fun way to spend a couple of hours. Um, yep. And I, I think the focus all the time on these commercial products makes makes sort of introduces a bias that uh, creates decisions that aren't always necessarily the right ones. So, getting on to rest tech then and the concept of price, which is obviously exceedingly important, uh, and everybody listening to this knows what we're going through at the moment. All input costs to all operators globally are going up. Therefore, all operators globally should be raising their prices. And if they're not, they have a major a major issue, whether they realize it or not. So pricing of experiences at the moment has to rise. Everybody should put their experiences prices up. So how can ResTech help their customers with pricing? Because pricing is confusing for a lot of operators. They're very well, nervous about putting their prices up. Yeah. I think you can put your price so. up if you put your service up. I don't think you can necessarily put your price up and keep the service the same. I think you, you almost have to target a slightly different customer base. Um, one of the challenges that uh, ResTech have got is that they've all shifted to this model where they charge a percentage of the booking as their um, the cost of using the ResTech. Yep. So, of course, as prices go up, the ResTechs are earning more for not necessarily providing additional um, features or services themselves. So, I, so this this was always a problem with ResTech and working on a on a on a sort of a five percent model, which many do, um, which is it always disincentivized the companies that had to spend money uh, at, at, to run products at slightly higher prices. So, for example, if you are a helicopter tour company or you're a food tour walking company. You have quite different capital costs. So one, so one of you is going to sell a, a tour at fifty dollars, and one's going to sell a tour at three hundred and fifty dollars. Why would you need to take five percent? What, what what difference is there like if you got five percent on fifteen, five percent on three hundred and fifty? Um, so as prices go up, the res techs are going to earn more, which doesn't uh, necessarily uh, achieve the sort of the objective of putting your prices up. Yeah, that I mean that model was incredibly popular now and understand why operators use it because they're they're only paying when the transaction goes through personally i've always found it barking mad uh, because if the market will wear six percent increased price at the transaction point i would want my prices to be up six percent and i would be paying for the rest tax for a fixed fee on an annual basis and then i would be more profitable and that is just a thing that is a fact from economics and the two is all about making operators more profitable 
Therefore, if you can buy Restec for X thousand dollars a year and you have the right turnover, and why would you not drop that six percent to your bot bottom line? That that to me is just a standard economics way of doing it. So I've always had a problem with that. However, I totally understand, particularly new operators, people starting up, no, they don't want any fixed costs. Uh, some destinations like North America are much more prone to accepting an added added costs on at checkout, whereas Europe, places like France, try adding 6% on in France, doesn't work very well at all. UK has a work sort of, but you do lose a lot of conversions by adding that 6% on. Yeah, yeah, I think the market's going to accept it more now. I mean, when, we st when people started uh, introducing that price concept probably 10 years ago now, um, if if you were if you were a tour operator and you were using uh, a ResTech and uh, a competitor tour operator in your destination wasn't using a ResTech because at that time you know ResTech was new ish well certainly a web based uh, ResTech was new um, then then of course you would have problems because you would be you you would, your prices would be uncompetitive versus your near competitor which is all that really matters. Uh, now, because there's much more sort of penetration of ResTech into the market, if everyone's got those same costs, it's much less of a concern in terms of your direct competitor having, uh, you know, a cheaper way of doing things. So, yeah. So, I think so here's a, a question to you as an ex-CEO for ResTech. So you, if you have 3,000 customers, 4,000 customers, 5,000 customers, tour operators, you have access to more data than virtually every tour operator. There's one or two operators at the very scaled end who must, may have a little bit more data than you, but you have access to more data than any individual tour operator or any small group of tour operators. Therefore, you have more knowledge about what's happening in the marketplace for, than any tour operators. The OTAs may have a bit more knowledge than you just because of the width of sales. So you know what is happening with price in the market before tour operators do. You can see the trends. You can see the booking numbers. So my question is, is why is ResTech not aggregating that data and feeding back to their customers and telling them what is happening in the market? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, I think the problem that ResTech's got is it's sandwiched between the online travel agents and the tour operators. So, so they can't act unilaterally. Um, so it's not their data. And it's not their ability to change the market. Um, and that's that's the problem with having this three-layer sandwich is that you can't, at any one of those layers, act and change something substantially because you have to bring the other two layers with you. Um, so whose data is it? The, the, the thing about the ResTech is that they would probably their perspective would be that that data belongs to their customers, which are the tour operators. Um, and so, therefore, you know, even in aggregate, it's difficult to it's difficult to share. Um, I remember with uh, Tor CMS, we used to have a, a a daily booking count, <laughs> so we could we were actually publishing how many bookings we were getting every day, um, and uh, that kind of thing. And that was really interesting. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's not published now, but um, it used to be published. That but that was good, uh, you know. So there was some kind of aggregate stats that could be published to make it um you know make it interesting to people um but, yeah, but you're right. much um, the, the booking numbers are, are obviously of interest but the real as we go into what i believe is going to be quite a challenging period going forward the ability to price correctly 
mm. at different times. And I'm, I'm not saying that's dynamic pricing. I'm just saying the ability to price correctly at different times is going to be so critical for operators to maintain profitability. Yeah, I mean, th that data exists. I mean, I, I, there's so many different ways of uh, counting it, though. For example, do you, you know, do you say, okay, this is four hours long, $120. So therefore, you know, how, what's the price per hour? And I know that you've you've done some analysis on that previously a long time ago, at, at trying to compare the price per hour for all sorts of different kinds of experiences. And yep. it's interesting, uh, you know, what does going to the cinema cost per hour versus what does going and sitting on a whitewater raft cost per hour? Yep. Um, you know, and just compare it on that basis. That that would be interesting. I mean, but the, but another way, but then that it's a little bit simplistic because. Uh, that tour or that attraction might be the one thing that you wanted to do that made you want to travel to that destination in the first place. So it's entirely what your memories are going to be about. And therefore, the value of that, not necessarily the price, but the value of that is so much higher. Um, so if you said, oh, that's going to cost $200, and you, but you go, well, that's going to be all my memories of this seven-day trip, suddenly it becomes good price. So you have to, so you, to, to do the analysis on that would become quite... Um, interesting but yeah technically the data exists i mean one of the problems is, is that the data is pretty unstructured uh at most res tech so you've got sort of text descriptions uh you might have a couple of images and you've certainly got good dates prices and availability data but you don't really have that much data about the itinerary um yeah. you know you don't know that this itinerary goes to certain place and stays there for 10 minutes and goes to another place and stays there for 20 minutes. That data is kind of in free text within, within these long descriptions that you that people distribute. But you, that needs to become structured data if you're going to do analysis on it. So moving on for there, I mentioned earlier in the intro, we have about a couple of hundred res techs now, everything from scaled ones to small ones. And we have res techs who have dealing with 50 customers to 100 customers. We have a big bunch of well-known names who are dealing with 3,000 to 6,000, 7,000 customers. And then we have some market leaders, Ken Fair Harbor's by far the market leader dealing with north of 20,000 20, customers. Having said that, if you add all of them numbers up, it isn't counting really... operators. I think you should be looking at uh, companies like Palisys as being a sector leader rather than this is Palisys who now own Tor CMS rather than yeah. Fair Harbor. Fair Harbor might have more Tor operators, but Palisys is, you know, well up there with transactions, for example. I oh, know, yeah, but there's different ways of measuring transactions. Yeah, yeah. Versus, but for this audience on here and mostly small, medium-sized tour operators, then what I'm getting to here is we have a bunch of operate, a bunch of res techs, well-known, well-established, some funded, some not funded. But when you add the numbers together, it isn't actually that big a number from operators using them. So that's good news for the res tech because that means, in theory, there's a huge market still to go. I would probably argue, and this has got feel, no data behind it, that operators who are adapted or have already adopted res tech are probably more, a wee bit more developed, a wee bit more leading them for the long tail that's left is probably a lot of small part-time jumping in and out type operators. So there may be a massive long tail left, but what is the value of that long tail? So where I'm going with this is we can't end up with hundreds of Rex techs all being successful. And at the moment, they're all trying to be, to me anyway, the same thing to all yeah. people. So they're all fighting over the same acquiring of 
tour operators, no matter what that tour operator does. They're also serving sometimes, sometimes attractions yep. uh, and sometimes not standard tour operators. So it looks to me outside in, any customer is a good customer at that point at the moment. But if we just take the market, we have some people who are owned by the biggest travel companies in the world. We have others with massive VC money. The market has to shake out at some point and some of these res techs are going to have to change their business model going forward. That's, that's just a fact. They can't all survive on being all things to the whole sector. Yeah, and and um, you know, there aren't that many knockout blows, by which I mean, if you're a res tech and you do a project and it takes six months, then uh, you know, 10 more res techs will do the same project. Um, so there aren't that many um, knockout blows that a single res tech can take to move their position within the market on. Um, I mean, but there is, I mean, perhaps there is one uh, which is, you know, a bit more long term. But as we're talking about the future of res tech, it's, it's, it's worth bringing it up here, which is uh, fundamentally it would be whichever res tech gets AI first. That's it. Um, so, you know, that between now over the next few years, you know, the the AI and all of the various different subcomponents of that will significantly change local tour operating and distribution. So, whichever res tech gets that first probably has an has has a chance to make a sort of a industry shift in terms of uh, acquiring more tour operators from one res tech to another. Or churning, perhaps, is the best word. But uh, I don't really like the word churn. But uh, that is the word that should be used. Yeah, so by default then, I mean, as, as you and I know, AIs from a technical perspective and an engineering perspective is not particularly straightforward and simple. Therefore, those with the most resources from an engineering perspective, which means those with the most access to cash to build these engineering resources, are probably in a better position going forward to, to adopt that. No, I'm not so sure. Um, I think we're still in the innovation phase with AI. So if you have tens of thousands of tour operators, you've got a problem because you, you spend six months on a project, you've got to make it available to your 10,000 uh, tour operators. And which means that as soon as you do that, your innovation uh, is just completely going to halt because you are then having to support those 10,000 on something that's quite new. So I would argue that it's probably the smaller ones who are able to innovate because they've got their agility still. Um, so I, I think there are inbuilt advantages for the smaller ones to innovate, but the smaller ones uh, tend to tended to have been late entrants into the industry. So you know that they they're not so well positioned because they've got less experience. Um, they've just got you know they're, they're focused on sort of catching up their their feature set to catch up with the leaders rather than necessarily coming up with a completely new feature set that's based around sort of AI, for example. So if we just dig into transactions a bit deeper, my interest and everybody in tour, not everyone, but the vast majority of entrepreneurs' interest is tours and activities. But we, we have this other big part of the sector in the industry called attractions. And, and attractions, as you know and I know, is volume. That is big transaction numbers on a daily basis, day in, day out, day, every day, whereas tours, activities are Im impacted in all sorts of things, seasonality and trends, all the rest of it. They go up and down, and it's a long, long tail, 
whereas we could probably spreadsheet the, the top 500 attractions in the world and that gives an eye-watering volume uh, of transaction on a daily basis which makes the OTAs very interested in attractions which makes ResTech interested in attractions but from a builder of ResTech in your background the question I've got here is how do you build for these global giant attractions that that do big volume versus building for tour operators in the long tail and attraction uh, activity operators who are doing 250k a year versus millions a year it seems to be very different customers that to me yeah. is is building for I think it was a bit of a mistake trying to join these two sectors together. I don't think that there's any real similarity um, but in terms of technology between what a, a small tour operator needs and what a, what an attraction needs. Um, and I, and I, I think that it's just a sort of a marriage of convenience that the two sectors have been kind of uh, joined together and have shared conferences and, you know, I called the same thing when people refer to it in industry trade press. Um, but I, I find that I don't find that there is a massive sort of feature set that is shared between those two different types of companies. I mean, even if you, if you look at something like yield management, um, you know, so how do you, how do you maximize for profitability? Well, um, you know, an attraction might be able to uh, dynamically price, for example. So when you hear uh, people talk about dynamic pricing, it's nearly always attractions. Whereas uh, when you're talking to tour operators, it's class-based yield management that should be applied. So you've got two completely different mindsets of how you do yield management. You, know, you just you can't even build one, one technology platform that kind of does both. I mean, you can. Um, but, you know, I, I think you end up with... Um, you end up with too much um, sort of distraction if you try and try and approach both markets. And I yeah, think that's... I'm conscious we throw about phrases in this industry, and, and many of our listeners won't understand what them phrases are. So I'll just cover off dynamic uh, pricing, and then if you could cover off class-based yield management that you described there, just so our listeners have an understanding. So the easiest way to describe dynamic pricing, listeners, is you've all bought hotels, you've all been on Booking.com or one of the OTAs and bought hotels. And you can see the price changing from five minutes to 10 minutes to days. It's based on supply and demand using clever technology that changes the price on a constant basis. As the operator who's supplying the product, if it's done well, you can make more money using dynamic pricing. Right, So that is dynamic pricing. Alex, yeah. could you explain? So class-based yield management is a slightly different approach, but it ends up with the same outcome, which is you're trying to maximize profitability. So you might have two products, one for sale at $50 and one for sale at $70, and they both use the same bus or they both use the same tour guide. What you do, uh, let's say in the last 48 hours, is you take the product that's for sale at $50 off sale, which you can do by just adjusting availability. And now the consumer who's interested in that product has to book the $70 product, not the $50 product. So just by adjusting availability, you can maximize profitability. And the reason why that's interesting is because the price itself is not changing. So if you've put the price on a leaflet and you've put the price on an online travel agent website, you're not having to, in the last 48 hours, have these prices going up and down. So you're getting, you're not having to get consumers scrambling around to find a phone to go, oh, golly, is it $50 now or $55? 
Um, you know, that's not what you want. What you want is a price that's on a leaflet and that price to be consistent and carried all the way through to the point of booking. Um, and, and so by using class-based yield management rather than dynamic pricing, you can keep the prices on leaflets, but you still maximize profitability. All you need to do in terms of doing that today is adjust availability, not adjust price. So every single online travel agent checks availability prior to making a booking with you if you're a small tour operator. So you can just change availability of two comparable products at just slightly different prices, and, 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 and you can do that today. So we don't need all of this new dynamic pricing functionality that's been built across the industry. We can do it using availability rather than price. Yep, that makes sense. Just on some of the points you raised there, there was a, a discussion entrepreneur Facebook group recently from Alex leading it from Travel Curious. And this is all about the demand from the customer for last minute bookings, last minute cancellation, which has been driven by retail, which in our world is OTAs wanting to serve their customer the best they can with last minute booking, last minute cancellation. Alex's point was he's in the world of private guiding rather than group guiding. It's all private. Therefore, he's finding it impossible to provide to the OTAs the level of service that they're increasingly demanding. Technology-wise, it's not an issue, as you know. We can You can set your reservation technology to whatever you want to feed to the to the retailers or certainly any of the, again, the good reservation systems that, that can be happening. So it's not a technology issue. Why I'm bringing it up, it, it seems to be there's a, a bit like tours, activities, and attractions. We seem to have a retail end that is treating everything the same in order to commoditize it in a way that the consumer can purchase or cancel the same as they can purchase or cancel a hotel room today. Whereas we have big sectors of tours and activities that physically, operationally, in the background, cannot operate to these standards. Otherwise, they're losing money left, right, and center. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, a, a, again, a classic difference between attractions and local tours. Um, local tours are going to need cutoffs and attractions because they tend not to be, well, pre-COVID, now they've got time slots. That's a slightly different discussion. But let's say we go back to not having time slots for attractions. Um, then you can have, um, you have no cutoff at all because you can just turn up and you can buy your ticket at the door. Um, the, 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 in fact, with some attractions, you have negative cutoff because you can get onto a ferry, the ferry can leave the dock, and then you buy your ticket. So you could actually be buying your ticket 10 minutes after the thing has started. So in attractions, you can have negative cutoffs. Um, now in tours, I mean, to give a bit of a sort of a historical arc on this, I can remember doing presentations at around 2010, 2012. And the big thing that we were pushing at the time was being able to book the night before. So you'd be sat in your hotel room at 10 p.m., 11 p.m. going, what shall we do tomorrow? And you should be able to book it then. Um, then in sort of 2013, 2014, the conversation shifted on a little bit. And it was, what, you're, you're having people sat at the breakfast table and they're thinking about what can they do today. Uh, and you want them to be able to book at the breakfast table, uh, you know, with, with, you know, a four or five hour cutoff. The, the, the cutoffs have evolved as far as they're going to go. And um, except when we start talking about digital tour operating, which is what I'm focused on now, 
because all of a sudden we can operate product with no cutoff. So that is where it gets slightly interesting because if you are a food tour company and you've, you have to have a two, three, four hour cutoff, a digital tour operator competing in the same location actually can still be on demand. So that, that is the natural endpoint for, where, where, for, for tour operators where cutoffs are going to go to. So this comes back to my point that we seem to be building technology to serve all sectors of tours, activities, attractions. But as we constantly find, we have verticals within particularly tours and activities that are not suitable to the retail end that the tech is trying to serve, the rest tech in the middle is trying to serve the operator and obviously serves the retail end. But we have these big sectors within tours and activities due to operational constraints that just cannot really be changed, that are not going to do what the retail end wants them. Therefore, the question is, should we be building different technology to serve different segments within the within the tours and activity space? Yeah, I mean, I think it's slightly sad for consumers because if you look at what can you do in two days' time, you've got this massive range of things that you can do. And then if you look on the day... Today, if, on most online travel agent websites, the only things that you can do and book at the last minute are attractions. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think from a consumer experience perspective, you know, that's, that's sad for the consumer because um, they want to be able to have the full range of product available. So, so I, there are solutions. As I said, uh, having a little bit of digital tour operating in can help bridge the gap so that the tour guides still get to two or three hour cutoff but you sandwich in a little bit of digital tour operating ahead. So from the consumer's perspective, they're starting immediately, even if the tour guide has got a little bit more time to get themselves in place. But yeah, I think I think cutoffs are booking cutoffs is going to be a um, a, a battlefield over the next few years uh, as tour operators come up with strategies for how they can get themselves to be still available to be booked on the day. Yeah. Just you did mention it there. I'm just going to emphasize it. When I look at this, if I was still operating, how would I deal with it? And I know in the business I was operating, I had cutoffs that I could not, no matter how I wheeled and dealed with the operational side of it, unless I was prepared to financially have a bunch of guys sitting doing nothing just to deal with last minute up to minute bookings. And I'd done the numbers to work out if that was profitable. Apart from that, going forward, the way I would dealt with it was, I'd have a range of experiences that were human-led that would have operational standards and cut-off times around it, but I would have self, in my world, self-guided experiences, mm. digital experiences that made sure I was getting a, a chunk of those last-minute transactions because even if I wasn't making a lot of cash from it, I was making some cash versus yeah. no cash. And the other thing I was generating is a warm lead, a hot lead, because they may not be doing the live experience, but they're doing a digital experience around the brand that I want them to do it. And then I've got details that I then can upsell, cross-sell, especially if you're in the tourism sector where people may be in destination for a week or three days, or if you're in DJs, you're in the entertainment, you're in the local sector. If that person is living in your area, you've suddenly got a red-hot lead if they've had a, a decent self-guided or digital experience and then you can go back to them and get a booking for a live experience going forward. 
That, to me, is the way that operators are going to have to deal with this pressure rather than constantly trying to backfill into their core operations and adopt them to the demand of the, the retail. It's actually creating new experiences yep. around it rather than trying to get their old experiences to fit the retail model. And, and I think that that, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the product has to evolve. And I think that's a super important point. And, and this is... Uh, this is going to be something that everyone's going to have to think about. Uh, what can ResTech do to help this? Um, there's not much that ResTech can do apart from sort of the digital tour operating, which they're not positioned to do, to offer. Um, so I think, it, I think it will be sort of an, an, an interesting evolution as, as the, sort of the sector gets its head around it. Um, it. I mean, from a consumer perspective, this is very much the same as, you know, going to the cinema where you might have to buy a ticket, uh, you know, 12 hours in advance, or you can buy a ticket. If, if you risk it, you can turn up and buy a ticket on the, on the door. Um, versus YouTube, where you just tap a button and you, you can press play and you can get something on demand. Uh, you know, which is more gratifying? Well, well, probably the thing that you pre-booked and because maybe, you know, we can talk about the, the quality of the content, et cetera, but that's a slightly different argument. Um, but the consumers are now just used to things being on demand. And therefore, as a as a as a as an industry, you have to serve that need. I do think we're in a bit of a blip at the moment. I'm just make sure operators do understand it is a blip. We have consumers at the moment booking in advance because of the chaos of the pandemic, and there is an awareness in the market that you can't get a restaurant table, you can't get things last minute at the moment because the industry globally is so short of staff. And I've experienced it myself in the last few weeks when traveling and hotels operating four days a week, restaurants, and only serving people who are staying in the hotel, not walkings off the street. So there's a whole host of that that means pre-booking is happening quite well at the moment, which is great for operators. But I do think operators under, need to understand this is a blip. And trend-wise and demographic-wise, it is just a thing. We all live on mobile phones. Last-minute booking is a thing that is not going to go away. It's just going to increase and increase and increase. And operators are going to have to design experiences that capture some of that market. I, I think where you and I come at it is from a slightly different perspective is that if you're ResTech, to build anything, i.e. to design something and then write the code and then test it uh, before you sort of scale it up, now that's 24 months minimum. Um, so ResTech always has to take a slightly wider market view. So because because you know you might have an idea today and you start building it and if it's not going to be in the market until 24 months time you know you have to be thinking over wider timelines so all of the planning that i'm doing with my current business is all around you know five ten year timelines because that, that's how long it takes you to build the technology to to you know to to, to be right at the moment that it needs to be right and but a tour operator who's local and small can go, oh, I tell you what, we're going to introduce this new tour. You know, that might only take two to three months. So the so you so tour operators can be much more agile than ResTech can be, actually. So moving on, uh, one of the industry's favorite worlds, words, not worlds, words, distribution. Mm. Obviously, ResTech is core to distribution. And sectors got slightly more complicated because channel managers have come along. Uh, 
everyone is driving obviously because of the last minute booking and booking online etc etc the demand on operators to hook up for live availability distribution through either their res tech which is the majority and then for a minority through channel managers what's your view on distribution going forward I, I think the uh, ResTech have been captured by the online travel agents. Um, the online travel agents have all of the things that they need in order to make a transaction. They have the supply contract. Uh, they have the consumers. Um, and the only thing they needed was dates, prices, and availability. So the ResTech have been distributing dates, prices, and availability to online travel agents. But everyone else, like hoteliers, airlines, they don't have supply contracts. They don't have uh, customer service teams. They don't have money handling teams. Um, and that whole market has sort of been missed because the res tech have become far too focused on online travel agents uh, who only need a, a subset of, of sort of the data that, um, that res techs have got. So I think that, so I think there's some quite interesting opportunities still there um, to improve distribution. Um, but I would say that most of these hoteliers and airlines really don't care for doing customer service and money handling. They just want to be kind of like a super affiliate. So they just want to be referring traffic and getting good service for their customers. Um, and, I, and I don't think that the ResTex can do that uh, because someone has got to do the customer service and someone's got to do the money handling. Uh, and if you're a hotel who doesn't want to do it and you're a ResTech who doesn't want to do it, then you know where's that where's that going to happen? Um, so, so my sort of view on that is that instead of distributing transactions, we should we should architect the industry around distributing uh, customer profiles and personalization to enable personalization. So, for example, if I know that someone is a vegetarian, then we shouldn't be suggesting to them that they go on a food tour that is dominated by steak, for example. Uh, you know, it's just simple things like that, which sounds simple, but there's no way of doing that today uh, because the online travel agents are guarding their profiles. For example, I mean, even some of them are no longer sending the email address of the customer down to the tour operator. So there is, there's, there's far too much profile protection going on. Yes, I know there's uh, requirements in some places like GDPR, but reality is that you can get around that. Uh, and it's, 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 it's the online travel agent's not wanting to share their customer profile data rather than any any legal issue um <clears throat> so so i think that so i think that we can build around we can build a, a distribution platform that's around profiles and about personalization and that, so for example a hotel hotel might know that a guest is vegetarian in which case we should only be suggesting to that hotel guest the non meat non fish food tours you know that seems like a Pretty straightforward example, but it's just something that can't be done today with today's uh, infrastructure. Um, and so, yeah, if, we, that, if we take the data, if we take the data, the online retailers and anybody that's retailing at the front end of the consumer, they don't actually have that much data of no. the consumer apart from maybe phone number, email address, maybe age because of certain activities they're booking. They had to put in the age, but it's pretty limited data really and then we have the issue that and it's the industry issue is irregular purchase so you're not if you're a retailer the guest isn't really using you 
every two months, every three months, if you're lucky, if there are tourists, you might get two bookings that week, and then you may not get another booking for two, three years, and hence, and the cost of acquisition and the lifetime value of customer in this industry is really, really challenging. So the point I'm getting to there is the industry at the moment doesn't really have a lot of data. When we talk about personalization, which I'm a big fan of and how to serve the customer, we don't have the data sitting anywhere in the industry that can actually deliver much more than what we're doing at, at the moment. You brought up hotels. Do hotels have that data? They have probably more, but and certainly on the loyalty schemes, if we go to the big hotels, so the Marriott's and the Hilton's and those of the world, in their loyalty schemes that measure hundreds of millions, hmm. they have a lot more data in there. But if you sign up to their emails, you're still getting nonsense yeah. thrown at you that is not personalized in any way, shape, or form. So as much as I'm a fan of personalization, my, my sort of question is, is it a pipe dream or are we actually got any tools that are yeah. going to allow us to actually personalize? I mean, I, I've built that. Uh, so on my sort of vision as to how the industry can be structured, I've got it. I've built a working model of how that can that how that can happen. Um, so I don't think it's a pipe dream because it is because I can demonstrate that today, right? Um, what's difficult is how you get ResTech from where they are today to that state. Uh, that's the that's the jump. You have to because you have to move the tour operator, the ResTech, and the online travel agent to that state. So I'm not quite sure that that is a, a simple transition, um, especially if you're not too motivated to do it. Um, so, so we've built it uh, and we'll be scaling up a different industry model, which uh, has this approach at its core, the personalization approach. Um, and that, uh, you know, uh, it, it, for, the, for the people that it matters to, it matters a lot. So if you're traveling with kids, or you're vegetarian, or you don't drink alcohol. You know, you're, these are all things that have massive implications as to what you're going to do in a destination. So those people may, may I mean, I've, I've got a sort of stats that says 22% of our customer base have got something on their profile that would mean that they would make different choices about what they're going to do in destination than, than people who don't have those those sort of preferences and i think that is a you know those 22 percent are probably just about large enough as a as a bridgehead to get excited about wanting to give over more of their personal data to get a better service and the sort of the 80 percent who all eat meat and all drink alcohol and all can walk 10 miles on a walking tour you know they won't really care about showing their preferences because they'll just take whatever they're given because they're they're able to do that. But to the people who can't, I think that they will be the ones who will transition first. Yeah, and for the audience, for the tourpreneurs to understand why this is important, super important in my opinion. Again, it comes back to and mantra that I keep ranting on about, making operators more profitable. If we look at the retail end at the moment, online booking, just ask whoever's providing you the service, just ask them the conversion rates. The conversion rates are tiny. It's one, two. If anybody's getting 3%, they're outstanding. So most are operating online in the one and a half, two percent lane, often much worse than that. So what does that mean? That means like lots of people who are visiting your information and your knowledge and your stories are not converting. So 
this personalization contextualizes around the customer, what does it do? It increases conversion rates. And if you increase conversion rates, even by a single percent, never mind two, three, four, five percent, you're suddenly an incre incredibly much more profitable operator without having spent any more on marketing and acquiring the customer. You're just converting the customers back better mm. because what you're offered is contextualized correctly to that right subset of, of consumers. Now, that to me is why this is so interesting because we're looking to move the needle 1%, half a percent, 2%. Mm. These sound tiny numbers, but in profitability terms, they're huge numbers. Yeah, and and and, and personalization now we're sort of on that topic. Um, it's not just about discovery, but it's also about operating. So the ability to be able to start a tour at someone's hotel rather than forcing the guest to come to a visitor center by 10 a.m., you know, that the the the, the ability to personalize the delivery, the operating is probably even more significant than the ability just to be able to personalize the discovery phase of, you know, how does the guest work out what is the best thing for them to do. Um, and I think as, as digital gets stronger on the operation side, because at the moment, everything at the moment, we've got an industry which is digital on the retail side, but the operating is still human. Um, so as we, as we transition towards digital operating, you know, we can personalize to so the customer if they're Japanese, gets their entire food tour in Japanese. If their guest is staying at this hotel, they, the, they, the, the tour starts at that hotel. Um, you know, this is all. <clears throat> you know, this is all quite, um, uh, you know, obvious, but also very, very hard to execute. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult, but the the upside of it is huge because, like I said, yeah. we can increase conversions. We're not looking necessarily to grow the market. It's the market is already there that can convert better because the evidence at the moment says it's not converting well, particularly on, on online booking, which everybody's pushing towards. But the conversions of them online booking are not impressive at the moment. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's where the you know, we're talking about the future of ResTech. That's where, you know, ResTech is very much on the retail side. Uh, you know, you get ResTech also working on the sort of the ticket redemption, you know, the ability to be able to wave a, a phone or a printed out piece of paper with a QR code or similar on it. You know, that's that's pretty much where the ResTech ends. Uh, you know, it doesn't go into the experience delivery itself. And here, I mean, here's a, here's a big question for you. And I'll ask you a question. You've been asking me all these questions. So what is the number one question that uh, tour guides get asked? Number one question, obviously depends on what sector they're in. Uh, often, from my background, on arrival, where is the toilet? Right. That's a good question. That's it. So can you, out of these 250 res techs that there are, how many of them have got a toilet project? Any of them? No. Right. So that's the point, is that there are all these consumer needs that are not being served by the res tech. Yeah. Why, why that, is that? Where, that is where we're getting into personalization of, mm. of, of humans. And that is contextual, contextually, once you get deep in that, you do improve conversions. You do because you're taking care of all human needs. 
Yeah, I, now, that, I mean, that's the point I'm trying to say is that is that res tech stop at the point that the consumer hands over their ticket. But but there's there's all this other digital serving that we could do to the consumer, uh, you know, uh, while they're on their tour, and you know, I mean, it's it's things like, you know, oh, I'm not sure I want to interrupt the tour guide. Can I? Because can I? Should I go to the loo now? Can I go to the loo in ten minutes' time? Where are we going to be in ten minutes' time? You know, it's simple things like that. But it's not even being addressed by any of the res tech. The res tech are, uh, well, the res tech is named res tech because it's all about the reservation. But they need to move to being a wider scope and a wider, uh, you know, apply their apply technology to the whole uh, to the whole experience itself. So, do you see just we're coming up to wrapping up soon? But do you see the ability of the current clutch of reservation technology? Obviously, we've got the big boys, well funded, the ones who have been going for years, so we're very well established. Lots and lots of startups, or again, two, three year startups. Do you see them breaking out where we get some ones going vertical so they become the best rafting operator, rest tech, or the best multi day walking tour operator, rest, best food tour, rest tech? Do you see that happening? Is that a viable market for some of them to, to break out and just become the expert reservation technology in a vertical? I think so. Uh, but that, that, that if you're the tour operator and you're going into that res tech, you then are buying into the fact that the technology is not going to be your competitive advantage. So if you're a food tour operator and there are three or four food tour operators in your city and all of you are on the same res tech, well, technology, you, you know you're not going to be coming last by te with technology because you've got the same technology, but you also know that you're not going to get any advantage from your technology. Um, you know, the, the, there is simple technology out there and there's complicated technology out there. And the complicated technology is there because it's more powerful. And if it's more powerful, it enables you to do things that your competitors can't. Um, so that, you know, I, I, I do think there will be specialization of ResTech. But if you're a tour operator and you're going into those specialized services and you might think this is a good thing, and it probably is a good thing if you're not technical, is that you should take that technology and go, right, we're going to have to compete on everything but technology. So we have to make our tours amazing. We have to make our guides trained uh, totally well. Um, and, and technology will just be sort of something that purrs along and just works. Great. You can do that. But if if you're in a very competitive um, city, you need to have slightly more power because you need to have the capability to do things that your competitors can't. For example, you the ResTech might provide an API so that you or developer can write some code to interact with your customer profiles and start doing clever things. Great. And you might have this amazing idea that you don't even want to tell the ResTech company about because you're going to use that to drive an advantage versus your near competitors who are in the same city. So the ResTech needs to give you the power and not to be able to see exactly what you've done. And that is what the power of, a, of an API for developers, that's what it enables people to do. So, so I think we can have specialization, but also I, I think if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to compete on technology, then you, what you really need is something with a powerful API rather than something that's specialized around your particular product type. So if you were still CEO of ResTech and you're looking at the industry today, you're looking at tour operators today, 
just to finish off, what's the one or two things that you think you would be doing to make tour operators more profitable? I, I think I would be looking at fintech, financial technology, because I don't think money needs to flow all around the world as it does today. So, for example, uh, why would a consumer who, let's say, might be standing in London, they might bring up an online travel agent app uh, from a global online travel agent. The money will now flow physically, well, it won't physically flow, but it will go from London to wherever the online travel agent is headquartered back to the supplier that's probably only five miles away. There's just a lot of money flows that don't need to happen. So I would, I, if I was a res tech, I would be looking at that. And I know quite a lot of the res tech have got things on the financial side, but we just don't need money flowing around quite as much as we do. That's super important. Um, the second thing, um, yeah, I think that's probably the, sort of the first. But the second thing is I don't know whether or not it, there really is um, the much market in going down the long tail of all of these small tour operators. However, the, what there is is the opportunity to make a small tour operator a larger tour operator. So I don't think you should be trying to onboard endless small tour operators that would be one, two-person operations. Um, but you could take a five-person operation and make them a 50-person operation. That will probably make more money for you than you know, constantly be trying to sort of onboard the, the really the really smaller tour guides. Of course, tour guides who are standalone tour guides have got dedicated tour guide platforms. So that's a slightly different, a slightly different thing. But yeah, I think there's a massive opportunity in in commercially helping, you know, that the five employee companies become 50 employee companies. That's where that's where I'd be looking. Yeah, I agree on the same point there. But again, they have the data from their customer base, which is us, the tour operators. There is a lot more I see that ResTech could be working deeper with the base that is going to basically give them a customer for life rather than having to suffer churn. If that customer gets bigger, obviously they make more money. That's probably a much more attractive model to me, anyway, if I was owning a, a ResTech, than acquiring another 15,000 small one-person or two-person operations around the world. So I just want to finish up here by saying to the community that ResTech's been about now for a while, 15, 16 years. In my opinion, I think we're incredibly lucky as tour operators that we have such a wide choice of reservation technology. We also have a lot, a lot of high quality reservation technology. For the younger members and for people who have not st have started up recently, you may think this stuff's expensive. Trust me, it is not expensive. We've got really good technology in the industry here that is at a really cheap price. If you, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember when we had to pay real money for technology versus today where you can pay monthly or you don't pay at all and customer pays. And this technology we're getting for a low value price is fantastic. It really is. So it's up to all of us to work deeper with the technology companies that are supporting us to allow them to, to help us become better operators and more profitable. Okay, Alex, thanks very much for your input today. That was great. That's Alex Benbridge of Otora talking about the future of reservation technology even though he doesn't run one anymore. Thank you. Thank you.